It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by the juice of Safu that thoughts acquire speed, the lips acquire stains, the stains become a warning. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by the juice of Safu that thoughts acquire speed, the lips acquire stains, the stains become a warning. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. Tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about David Lynch's Dune. <laughs> Welcome to the World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists. The world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts. My name is Andras Jones, and I'm Brian Connolly, the other host. And you chose Dune. I sure did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was, felt the timing was right. The new one's coming out. All I'm doing at work all day is defending this one because everyone wants to shit on it because the new one. So I thought it's good to have an episode. Like It has to happen. We, I need to defend this movie. I've been defending this movie for years. So let's, let's just get it on tape and make it legit. Okay, well then, uh, you know, let's not waste time. Why don't we play a clip from the film, and then we're going to come back and we're just going to we're gonna shoot the shit about it. Time passes. Okay, uh, before we get to the clip, this is something we're recording after we recorded everything, because there's a big mistake that's about <laughs> to happen over and over and over again. I can't handle it. <laughs> So several times in the upcoming episode, Brian asks me how to pronounce the name of the director of the new version of Dune. And I pronounce it incorrectly every time. You pronounce it incorrectly, <laughs> but you announce your ignorance. But then you refer to me as an authority. And then I spell it's like it's like being in 1979 and saying what his name Spielberg. Spielberg, right? We're going to be hearing about this guy's name for the rest of our <laughs> cinematic lives. Let's get it right. So, are you ready for it, Brian? Do you know how? Yes. It, right. His, no. His name is pronounced Denis Villeneuve. Not, oh, that's easy. Not Villeneuve, like I say, as I'm going to say. So, when every time you hear me say that, just know that his name is pronounced Denis Villeneuve. Like Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, like I can do. I can do that. Like the last name of your favorite director, Claire Denis. Yeah. And then Villeneuve. Just it's Villeneuve. It's just easy. It's simple. But you want to know something <laughs> cool about Claire Denis that I just read? Oh sure. <laughs> She's directing an adaptation of Dennis Johnson's *Darkness at Noon*, which I've always thought was the book of his that demands to be made into a film, and it's starring Margaret Qualley. From, oh wow! Yeah, hey, it's gonna be. That, I'm so excited. That's good. Wow. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, we'll get to that in a future episode. But now let's get to this clip and enjoy this episode about Dune, despite my mispronunciations of the director <laughs> of the upcoming Dune's name. And uh, thanks for your patience. <laughs> there might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. You see this? Put your right hand in the box. What's in the box? Pain. Stop. 
put your hand in the box. I hold at your neck, the Gomjaba. This one kills only animals. Are you suggesting a duke's son is an animal? Let us say, I suggest you may be human. Your awareness may be powerful enough to control your instincts. Your instinct will be to remove your hand from the box. If you do so, you die. You feel an itching there. Now, the itching becomes burning. Heat upon heat upon heat. Burn. Silence! Silence! I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is a little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. I must not fear flesh. story of dune no uh, oh my god we really need to do a recap so you know what i'm gonna make it the most easiest simple simon cliff notes version because this is a very complex plot based on a very complex book an unfilmable book some would say so here's the basic plot there's a planet that has spice on it everyone in the universe wants spice it's like the most popular thing in the whole damn universe there's two families they want to control the spice, okay? There's the Atreides family, and they're kind of like the good guys. And then there's the Harkonnen family, and they're kind of like the bad guys, and they both want the spice. And you hope that the good guys get the spice, and not the bad spice, and there's big worms. There's your plot of Dune. <laughs> Done. You know what? If you want to know more, read the book. Watch the movie we're about to talk about. It is complicated. There's a lot of characters. They all have weird, long names. This plot is so complicated, the movie has to open with like a 15-minute intro to explain everything because it's so goddamn complicated. And that's fine. <laughs> but there's your plot. I'm not going to go any further than that. Wait a that. second. Wait a well, second. I well, thought the plot <laughs> was there's this plucky young filmmaker who manages to get people to pay attention to his weird, super weird first film. And then he makes a second film that gets nominated for Oscars. So he gets given the opportunity to direct this blockbuster, Dune. And he ends up making a very classically him film, except nobody knows what kind of films he makes yet. And so it's a disgusting mess that everyone hates. (laughs) And... That's why we need to do a podcast about it. Isn't that the story of Dune? Oh, yeah. And somewhere in it, Bingo. there was an original <laughs> version that was supposed to have Salvador Dali. And it was going to... And then everyone... Jodorowsky was yeah. going to direct it. And Pink Floyd was going to do the set. Yeah. Right. And then everybody so. <laughs> from Ridley Scott and George Lucas ripped off that version to make films that were very popular. But yeah. the film that actually was based upon the Frank Herbert books... <laughs> 
was just an early example of David Lynch not caring about what most people care about, which is what makes him a great film. Great. <laughs> exactly. And we'll go into that. But first, okay. ask me the big question. Okay. Brian. How you doing? No. <laughs> Brian, how is the world wrong about this uh, film? Oh, my Lord. The world is so wrong about this movie. People hate this movie. People have always hated this movie. Critics hate this movie. This movie is considered a box office bomb. This is considered a critical failure. It's often talked about as one of the big Hollywood failures of the 80s of all time. And there's a new one coming out. And because there's a new one coming out, people feel the need to, again, talk about how bad and terrible this movie is. Guess what, people? The world is wrong. This is a very, very exciting movie to me. Uh, does it work? Not really. Is it great? Not so much. But I loved it. And I think it's beautiful. And it's like, it's it's one of the most beautiful Hollywood movies of the 80s. Um, I'm very excited to talk about it. Uh, I'm a huge David Lynch fan. And uh, yeah, I'm just I'm ready to defend this as I have been for the last many weeks, months, you would say. I work at the uh, Austin Film Society where everyone there is a big fan of that French Canadian guy who's making the new one. Del Dennis Villeneuve. I wasn't even going to pretend to try to say his name right. So I'm glad he did. And great, he can make that movie. But just because someone's doing that doesn't mean you have to dig up this movie and just treat it and beat it like a you know like a sad old dog. Don't do that. <laughs> let's 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 Not bring to this, this movie film in. Or let's, to your dog. You know. <laughs> let's let's embrace this movie. Let's get excited about the 1984 version of Doom. Okay, you say so. Um, <laughs> hey, I'm not a, I'm not here. I'm not here to say anything negative about this film. I do want to say that with a film like this, that's based upon a very popular literary property and where there's a lot of history, uh, I don't want to, I'm not sure if we're going to be, if we're qualified to give people a definitive a Dune podcast. <clears throat> That's why I no. would like to encourage people who are interested in some in a lot of the history around this film uh, to check out the Projection Booths podcast yeah. about Dune. Yes. It's super informative. Lots of sound clips. We love what Mike White does, and their 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 um, episode on this is is I think is going to be a good companion piece to what we're doing here and also mike also did the uh the commentary for the new yeah. dune mm -hmm. uh is it a blu-ray yeah yeah it's like a double triple disc blu-ray um i'm very excited to own that blu-ray so. so congratulations to him on that so so that's one thing and the other thing is yeah this film i I'm 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 baffled by it. That's why I'm excited to talk with you about it. I've had I've I've since we announced it, I've had several people tell me they're looking forward to this episode oh, and to hear us talk about Dune. So I think you have your your finger on the pulse. I think that the been... world is wrong. Audience is is actually yeah. probably excited for this conversation. 
Because I bet fans of this movie are in the same position as me. It's like this new one's coming out and you're hoping it's good and you're excited about it, but you're having to defend this one that you've loved since it came out or have liked a lot or, you know, have been fascinated by. So hopefully this will be helpful to those people. Like send people who are with me, send this episode to those people who are naysayers of this film and let them, let, let them understand why we like it so much. Okay, so that's what I. But see, so I I want to say, so I'm also not someone who loves this film. I have now watched, <laughs> but I have, three I different have. versions uh, since we. <laughs> I knew we were going to do it, so I've watched it with the the appreciative eye of your world is wrong co-host. But mostly, what I want to do is ask you questions about the the, the parts of the film uh, that you find particularly exciting. Sure. So, yeah. Um. Off the top, what's the what is the the main thing for you that brings you joy when you watch this film what i really like i really like movies where you have someone like a david lynch who has a very unique perspective who started immediately making the films exactly the way they want making the movies that they want to make and have continued to make only the movies they've wanted to make and when those people somehow accidentally get invited (laughs) to the blockbuster Spielberg Lucas world <laughs> and mistakenly are given a lot of money to make a big movie what comes out of that always i'm going to i'm going to go out, i'm going to go out and say every time is something that i'm very very excited about whether it's a toby hooper's life force or a, a joe dante's gremlins 2 <laughs> or just just People that are allowed to make things that are bigger than what they should and treat it as if it's going to be like a regular movie that everyone in America is going to see and then realizing this is not the type of movie that everyone in America wants to see. I'm always very excited and I'm a a big champion of those types of movies. And sometimes they work. Sometimes it works like Peter Jackson being given Lord of the Rings or Sam Raimi given Spider-Man. Those are directors that you never thought in your wildest dreams would be able to make these huge global films. And for whatever reason, those guys were able to make movies that clicked, but it still had their unique perspective. But David Lynch's unique perspective isn't exactly what all of America wants. (laughs) So uh, I'm very excited about Dune. And every time I watch it, I'm very excited because it is so David Lynch and people mistakenly jump over it and skip it when talking about his movies, thinking it doesn't count, that it's not one of his movies. And and it kind of, in a way, isn't, and we'll talk about that. But it's so much is definitely a David Lynch movie. You, could, you couldn't escape it. Like it's, And it just kind of is that great thing of like, no matter who you are, you're going to make the thing that is yours, no matter who you are. And he, you know, got a big budget, got a big movie, was not even given final cut. And yet still, at the end of this mess, you have a David Lynch film. Definitely. And that is is very thrilling to me. Every time I watch this. And I forget. I always forget that every time I watch this. Like when I watched it this time, it'd been a spell. And I just forgot how David Lynchy this movie is. (laughs) Like, I probably haven't seen this movie in 20 years. And watching it again, I'm like, oh, my God, this is such 
It's, just, it's definitely a David Lynch movie. Who else would made this movie? Uh, so that's why. Yes, definitely. The uh, the so many of the actors who would go on to work with him, yeah, are showing like it's the first time he's working with a lot of different people who will show up in yeah. either Blue Velvet or Twin, Twin Peaks. Peaks, yeah. And so this feels like the beginning of his of building his stock company. In oh a way. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have Brad Dorf who shows up in Blue Velvet. You have Freddie Jones, who was already an Elephant Man and shows up in Wild at Heart, uh, and on the Kyle Air. McLaughlin. Kyle McLaughlin, if yeah. like in yeah Twin Peaks and uh, Blue Velvet and Blue Velvet. Everett McGill, who's in Twin Peaks. Jack Nance, of course. Uh, Jurgen Prochna, who's in Twin Peaks. Fire Walk with Me. Uh, Dean Stockwell, who shows up in Blue Velvet. Alicia Witt, who shows up in Twin Peaks and Hotel Room. It's like. Clearly, it wasn't a bad experience for these people, exactly, because they all continued to work with this fellow long after this. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it, uh, this is where I'm going to go to an interview they conducted with some with uh, a writer who was on the set writing about Dune. And it's this it's odd because in the conversation, on the one hand, he's talking about the amount of loyalty and commitment that people had to David Lynch's vision and how much people loved him and how easy he was to work with and also about how dangerous and potentially deadly the working conditions were like they had to they had like the way they did the sand had these little glass things on it <laughs> that would just get blown around and then Yikes. at the same time they were they were making fires by lighting they were making smoke by lighting tires on fire so you have <laughs> rubber in and glass in the air and these people working on it so it's uh it sounds like it was it's i don't know it's it's it it sounds like a great and terrible experience <laughs> from which a lot was born and that that quality of this film might kill me if i get too close to it is definitely like it's it's an icky film Right. Uh, I mean, that is. Yeah. And it's an it, ugly film and it's it's a gross film. It's it's basically it's Star Wars with face sores. <laughs> face sores episode one. <laughs> but, <laughs> but just I guess a little bit of background, just like a little bit for anyone who hasn't heard anything about this. David Lynch made Eraserhead, became Midnight Movie classic instantly. Like Stanley Kubrick was a fan. It played for years and years in theaters. It was like the go-to true cult classic. From that, he was able to make for Brooks films, The Elephant Man, which is an exquisitely made, like classic Hollywood type movie, but still with that Lynch perspective, it, it was nominated for so many Oscars, best director even. And wait, so he was like, when you said for Brooks films, let's make the it, Mel, Mel Brooks Mel produced, Brooks produced the elephant. It's not a comedy, but he produced the elephant man. And gave David Lynch a uh, final cut and creative freedom with the Elephant Man, and it's a fan. It's a beautiful movie. If no one's seen it, I think everyone's seen it. But if, if you're the rare person has it, it's beautiful. It's great, great. And so he was sort of like the go-to it guy. Like you've made this weird little movie on your own, everyone loves. You've made this Hollywood movie that is sort of like a classic thing already, and it's up for Oscars. So like you can do whatever you want. So he's offered by George Lucas to direct Return of the Jedi. <laughs> if you can imagine an alternate reality where that happened. 
And there's a story that David Lynch tells. I don't know what interview. There's some interview I saw uh, where he talks about having a day where he hung out with George Lucas, where they like drove around in some classic 50s car. And clearly him and George have similar, you know, tastes of like they love the 50s and of those kind of cars and that kind of music. And, and in my mind, they went to like Bob's Big Burger and had like a shake and some fries <laughs> and talked about Star Wars. And I guess the more George Lucas started talking to Dave Lynch about Star Wars, Dave Lynch was very confused because Dave Lynch had never really seen any of the Star Wars movies. So I think I think the quote from the interview is Dave Lynch being like, what the heck's a Wookiee? <laughs> what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And so he realized that it was too much George Lucas's vision and he couldn't really have his stamp per se on Return of the Jedi. So he passed. What would have David Lynch done with Ewoks and Jabba the Hutt? Or uh, Carrie Fisher in that outfit, the slave outfit? We can only have our imaginations on that. But he went with Dune. He was offered Dune by Dino De Laurentiis, a movie that people have tried to make for a long time was considered an unfilmable book. Yodorowsky tried to make it, couldn't get it going. Ridley Scott couldn't get it going. David Lynch did it. He got it. It was a big movie. The biggest movie David Lynch had made at this point. The biggest movie he will ever make. After this, he never made a movie this big by his own choice. And it was a long production. He did not get final cut. And so he, to this day, kind of disowns this movie kind of backs away from it doesn't really consider it part of his filmography <clears throat> so that's just a little background uh what do you did you see this movie when it came out what's your what's your experience like first watching I, I, this do you remember i saw it on i remember well what i remember at the time was i hadn't read the books i was in high school, the big connection to me was that Sting was in it. <laughs> and I, because I, as a Who fan, I had really liked Sting in Quadrophenia. Yeah, yeah. And around the time that I saw Quadrophenia, the Monty Python Secret Policeman's Ball had just been released on film. And I remember... One of a, a really early and uh, important sort of visceral, powerful cinematic experience I remember was seeing that film. And Pete Townsend's performance from the original Secret Policeman's Ball is was amazing and why it was why I was watching it. But Sting's performance in that, it it's the thing that he would go on to do that became something that I, I think kind of lost its power on people. But that first time seeing Sting alone just with his uh, Stratocaster guitar and singing these songs with just like that, that solitary reverby thing that he could do was really, really powerful. So I, I remember, so I had had two really strong cinematic experiences with him. And then, so I was, I remember looking forward to Dune because of him yeah. And so if you go into the movie with that, you're going to be disappointed. Really? Um, well, not that <laughs> uh, because Sting is uh, I'm I'm thinking from the standpoint of not that he's not great in it because he is, but he's not in it that much and he's a two-dimensional bad guy. 
And so, but he's in those little underpants and coming out of that steam bath exactly, again. Isn't that what you want from a steam? Well, that, I remember. <laughs> though, I, I remember all those pictures, and yeah, he's that's 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 not really what drew me to to <laughs> Sting or this picture. But I'm, I guess that that's my point. That was my that was my gateway, and then I just remember being sort of grossed out by it. Uh, I I have to cop to something that I'm I'm a little bit embarrassed about, but I also think it's the nature of his work. I, you know, I I had hostile reactions to Lynch's early films. Uh, that I I would grow into loving them. I still haven't gone back to see Eraserhead. I saw it in a midnight movie stoned and half awake half asleep and i feel like that experience was so intense and visceral that i kind of i just don't even want to go back to it because i feel like i might have got the best experience you could like as a teenager just i i just yeah and so and i but i remember really not liking it and then over time my memory is of even of not liking it i have become kind of pleasurable memories to me <laughs> and sh- same thing with blue velvet i re- i very embarrassing that my first response to it which is also a when i look back on it a truly powerful and visceral uh cinematic experience that that i i don't want to go into all the details of it but it was really something that went beyond the film um and but I still had a very hostile reaction to that. It wasn't really until Twin Peaks that I got his cinematic language, and then I can go back to those to all to those films and see like, oh, that's one like I love that now. So I think with this film, this was the first time preparing for this that I watched Dune with an awareness of Lynch's language as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's all there. That's all <laughs> very much there. But I also can see how it's disappointing. Yeah, to everyone. Again, it's disappointing. <laughs> like you, you, it's not really. It doesn't really get to be a Lynch film. It doesn't really get to be a Frank Herbert film. It doesn't really get to be a Dino De Laurentiis blockbuster film. Yeah, and it <laughs> it's cool. That's cool. Like it's like a band. Like it's a. It's like. It's like Blind Faith, like one of these, like a, like a band <laughs> that of all these heavy hitters that gets together for one record, and it's not the greatest from any of them. But holy but what shit. an experiment! <laughs> yeah, it, it's it is sort of like the B League Jodorowsky thing, you know, yeah. that Jodorowsky had all it was going to have too many big talents yeah. involved and not getting enough of any of them. But I th- I do think yeah I I. I am I am finding what there is to love in this film, but mostly what I want to do is talk with you about the things that you love in this film because yeah. I think that's what's most most interesting. You've given <laughs> it a lot more thought. So can we talk about Kyle MacLachlan's entrance into <laughs> the Lynch universe as this 15-year-old boy character? And this that, is his first movie, period. Like, this is the first thing he ever did, I believe. And... And... I I find him so likable instantly in this movie and in everything, even when he's supposed to be a bad guy. I can't help but like love him, like even in like Mad Dog. Even time. in Mad Dog time, when he's killing Gregory Hines, <laughs> you bastard. Even in Mad Dog time, in Showgirls, he just because he he's has 
Maybe it's because he's a fellow Washingtonian. He's from Yakima. I believe he still lives there. Uh, he just has this kind of dorkiness to him that is so endearing. And, and in this movie, he's just instantly kind of a dork. <laughs> but a very lovable dork. Like, they're clearly trying to make him like Luke Skywalker. They're trying to be like, who's a Mark Hamill type? Who's sort of like a handsome young guy that has his innocence to him? But unlike uh, Mark Hamill, Kyle McLaughlin kind of continued with that kind of character and perfected it through the da- the films of David Lynch. Like, here he's sort of this kind of innocent dork being thrown into being the savior of the universe. <laughs> But in Blue Velvet, you have him playing also like this innocent who's thrown into the world of S&M and drugs and violence. And in Twin Peaks, he's this sort of do good, you know, like deadly do right sort of FBI agent. And it's just like this sort of like the way David Lynch uses him is sort of this is sort of this like you are the positive energy. You're the good in the in the world and everything else around you is very bad. And that's very much here in Dune. Like he's just, he's the one who's trying to, he's just kind of like traveling through this universe, just trying to be okay with things and just happens to be the guy that everybody was waiting for to save the world and the universe. (laughs) And he's just so likable. Like, yes, he's handsome, but man, I love, I love Kyle McLaughlin. I've always loved him. He's great. And that's it's kind of problem when he plays bad people like in Showgirls or Mad Dog Time. It doesn't quite work because he seems like such a genuinely nice person <laughs> to such a dorky, almost like James Stewart type, you know, that it's not totally believable when he's trying to be bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I I feel like, again, like they he, like for me, they they got the code right on Blue Velvet. And then they really got it right on Twin Peaks. It is a little bit odd to me that after working on three really big, like surviving Dune and then working together on Blue Velvet and then Twin Peaks and then Kyle MacLachlan didn't work with Lynch again until the return of Twin Peaks. Yeah. It seems like... And it definitely seems like he's subbing for him, like Bill Pullman in Lost Highway could have been Kyle MacLachlan. But in a way, it's kind of of good because I feel that character is way darker because he's supposed to be a wife murderer. (laughs) But like, uh, or maybe like Justin Theroux in Mulholland Drive. Like he he definitely likes these like kind of handsome guys. But I feel like those characters, like the character in Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway, aren't quite that innocent... Like instead in those movies, it's more safe for the women. Like I think in Lost Highway, that's more uh, Patricia Arquette. And in Mulholland Drive, it's more Naomi Watts and um, the other lady whose name eludes me. But but I'm glad that he came back because in season three of Twin Peaks, he is great. He is so good as Dougie and as Agent Cooper again. Like that is Kyle MacLachlan being amazing again. I mean, I love him in Sex in the City and I love him in other things, but like just when him and Lynch get together, it's like it's like De Niro and Scorsese. It's like uh there's some magic going on there. There's like there's something like that they tap into each other that's better than when they work with other people. Um Yeah. I don't want to suggest that anyone's playing this long a game, but 
there's something about there's something that work that that works so well in the return of Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks season three that Kyle MacLachlan has been in a box in the Lynch that he isn't in the Lynch universe until then. It's sort of like he built this guy up to this place and then he just pocketed that card <laughs> as a director of like, I'm not going to like I know I'm going to bring Twin Peaks back at some point. And when I yeah. do, the one thing I know is that Agent Cooper and Kyle are, you know, like, thank goodness that Kyle McLaughlin, you know, stayed alive and, you know, <laughs> ambulatory uh, through, all, through all that time. Although, I, who knows how we could have made it work. I guess, yes, there's something, I, I think there's some, I'd like to imagine that Lynch is thinking that far ahead and being like, and... <laughs> Kyle MacLachlan's in the cor- in the corner saying, "You know, I'd like to be in one of your movies again." You know, David. You know, like <laughs> whenever you want to call, I'll be there. <laughs> Bill Pull, yeah, I guess. Yeah, get, uh, yeah. Why am I not as good as Bill Pullman? <laughs> like, thinking like an actor, you know, like why? Okay, I get your. Yeah, I get your I get your chess piece game, David. But I need to work. I'm working in Showgirls. Come on. I think it's just great that David Lynch saw something in him because, like, in this movie, and yeah. this movie being so disappointing to David Lynch in the end, he could have treated Kyle MacLachlan as like, oh, that's that handsome guy I had to make that big movie with, and I didn't, like, didn't really get to yeah. make the movie I wanted, and now I can be with, like, the people he's more used to being with, like a Jack Nance, like someone who's more of a weirdo and not like a traditionally handsome guy, but clearly there was something that was clicking on this movie, even though it, like, I feel this is definitely. Without a doubt, the weakest of the of the, his roles with working with David Lynch, but there's definitely something that happened there that he knew that he wanted to use this guy again immediately, with his movie Blue Velvet, which was sort of his makeup for from this movie. Like this, like it's good that this movie failed because of that. We got the David Lynch we know. If this movie had succeeded, there would have been Dune sequels, and David Lynch, I don't think, would have There's ever made. There's no way this Blue film Velvet. could have. Succeeded. Exactly, that's exactly the, that's <laughs> that's what's so great is like it was only ever gonna fail. There's never this movie like David Lynch is not meant to make these big kind of movies. I'm glad he did it once. I'm glad we we're able to see what that is like, which is a very strange thing. But like he. I feel like he was always going to fail at this and always going to end up making Blue Velvet. It just has to be. There's no way that guy can make anything different. <laughs> it just, it's not, he's not meant to make these kind of big movies. It just isn't going to work. It's funny because I do think of, like, I think of Wild at Heart as being a pretty big movie. I think because Nicolas Cage is in it, but when you look at it, it really isn't an expensive looking movie. Like it, it that that movie feels like a mid-range budget. It looks better than this. I mean, he's a. <laughs> I mean, uh, I know you. You must enjoy it. I and and I I I can find things to enjoy in it, but yeah, the special effects in this are. Even for the time, great. <laughs> They're great. <laughs> You're Those, wrong. Okay. They're okay. good. Those sandworms look amazing. The sandworms look pretty cool, and the and the dude in the tank, the floating guy, like he looks amazing. Yeah, like that's, that's very great. much like the baby in Eraserhead. Like yeah. those effects, like the spaceships flying, don't look good. 
All the outer space stuff. Riding the whole look stuff. Riding bad. the riding the sandworms. Bad very... rear projection, green screen, whatever they had, blue screen. But like the things that were made, like in the sets, are amazing in this movie. Like they are ugly, but they're intricate. Okay, and but see, and, this like, is what I'm something saying. Exciting about the like the, the the detail. Like this looks like a very expensive movie. So my point is not to is actually not to tear down those aspects of this film, only to say that there there are there are there's episodes of season three of Twin Peaks that look maybe he's doing more with less, but they look <laughs> as cool and as big as the stuff in Dune. And the stuff yeah. in Dune, and I think probably this, I, I wouldn't lay, lay it all on the fact that he didn't get the final cut, but I think that just that's part of the nature of, of that kind of experience where there are moments yeah. in this that are great and Lynchian, and if David Lynch was doing all of it, he would decide to cut out the parts that aren't. But yeah. he doesn't doesn't have that opportunity with this, whereas... So I'm just saying, like his other, there are other films of his that are wildly, beautifully strange and have special effects that blow my mind. But but I think also with like especially with the third Twin Peaks season, he really likes that kind of lo-fi special effects. Like he likes that handmade stuff. He likes what yeah. kind of looks like dated '90s video art special effects. And I feel like if this movie was something he was proud of, which I don't think he is, like the scene, the scene where Kyle McLaughlin and Patrick Stewart are in those weird kind of like blocky digital. Yeah, like, that's tough. That that animated outfit. I feel he wouldn't change that. I feel he likes the way that looks today. If he liked this movie, he'd be like, I like the way that looks. I like that weird blocky kind of animated <laughs> look to it. And it's and it's great. Like that that scene is great. It seems. To me, that seems very David Lynch. Like that feels kind of like bad video art. It's an action action scene where it's kind of a non-action scene because you can't really tell what's going on with their bodies. And to me, that feels very David Lynchy. And and like it reminds me of the effects that are in like the third Twin Peaks, where it is very still very homemade feeling. Like he doesn't like maybe the effects that look so neat and tidy. Like he's not going to be happy with an ILM making his effects he wants like some weirdo people in a warehouse kind of making something or someone on a computer making something that's you know doesn't have to look real doesn't have to look new just has to be kind of strange and different i'm i'm watching it as we're talking <laughs> i just have it on without the sound and i'm just looking at the images and it is pretty great to look at i mean it is yeah. there are things the th and i think it's it is again it's the language if you're looking for it to be a, something that it's not then it's bad <laughs> and, but and if like, you're looking for what it is it's definitely and, and I it think, all looks beautiful and, think, and strange and i think ugly. that's where a lot of people are wrong about this movie oh and i just want to mention there's an insane lightning storm going on while we're recording this so if you hear any thunder or hard rain there's like a major hurricane going on in Austin, Texas, but it's perfect. Think about the lightning hitting the sandworms as they rise out of the uh, well, sand. Yeah, and That's what's going on here. 
Uh, David Lynch is obsessed with electricity. Where this is our first time the touching power into David may Lynch. go out while we record and, this, but luckily this is on a battery, so we're okay. <laughs> and you were mentioning that Kyle McLaughlin's from Washington, uh, Frank Herbert, also from the Northwest, yeah, and David Lynch lives in the Northwest. He's in Oregon, I believe, or at least his center is in Oregon. So yeah, uh, and of course Twin Peaks yeah. is based. Washington I mean, it might State. as well be based in Olympia. <laughs> Have you ever been to uh, the Snoqualmie Falls and gone to the diner and the hotel and stuff? No, I have friends who come to make it's, that pilgrimage. You should you should go. It's totally worth it. Like I went there with my wife the first trip we went together to Washington. That was sort of like top of the list of like we have to go to the Twin Peaks town. And the diner has been rebuilt for the third season because it had originally burned down. And they rebuilt it to make it look like it from the show. And the and the falls on the hotel is great. The hotel is really exciting. They have a great restaurant. It's a fun little town. Great little I can't breweries do it. And st- Why not? <laughs> it's like an hour drive for you. No, no. It's because... It, okay, so one of my... One of the... My great regrets... And I won't go into... I had the opportunity... I was asked to, to be seen on Twin Peaks... And because of a conflict, I turned it down. And two guys who I, one, who I was in acting class ended up being in it. And I loved it. I loved it. Like, it's one of those things where it didn't keep me from enjoying the film. But it's one of those things that I don't think I want to really walk around on the set <laughs> of something that it's hard for me to watch without I mean in a way it makes the me feel even closer to the film to Twin Peaks. Yeah. This sort of alternate universe feeling that I have with it. And have I ever told you the Sherilyn Fenn story? No. Please tell me. So after all this happened and Twin Peaks became a hit, there was one week where I got a call from Twin Peaks from the from the Twin Peaks offices say, saying, "Hey, we're looking for Sherilyn Fenn." Can we speak to Sherilyn? And I was like, um, sorry, <laughs> Sherilyn Fenn, you, you have a wrong number. And they're like, okay, thanks. And then, and then like 10 minutes later, they called back and they said, look, we really need to talk to Sherilyn. We know she's there. And I was like, oh my God, you don't know. You know, first of all, I wish you were calling for me. My name's Andras Jones. I'm an actor. I'd love wish to be involved Sherilyn in your show. Fenn and I really you. wish that Sherilyn Fenn was here <laughs> avoiding your call. But neither is the case. <laughs> how weird. I wonder how your number got mixed in with that. That's so strange. Um, uh, I still remember, as I'm telling you the story, I can still be in, I, I have that feeling of being in that apartment and... <laughs> Was this when you were in L.A. or back in yeah, Washington? Yeah, this is when I was in L.A. Uh, <laughs> this is when I was in L.A. and very much still auditioning oh, wow. and doing That's all that. so funny. Thing, so. Wonder where she was and why they couldn't find her and how they ended up finding her. Was this while know. the show was on? Yeah. Like season two or something? Like 1990? Yeah, season two. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and uh, yeah, 1990. It, yeah. It's so, funny. So, I think I, I think it's because we're from Washington, but like... That's why David Lynch is so close to me. Like Twin Peaks, like it just, it was kind of like Nirvana. It's like a thing that I knew was part of the rest of the world and country, 
but it just felt more intimate because it was yeah. so Washington based. Like I was in Cub Scouts with David Lynch's nephew when I was a kid. And I remember him just being like, my uncle's got a show on TV. (laughs) It's like, it's David Lynch. And, you know, and Twin Peaks is so Washington. It's so like perfectly Washington. And like kind of the first thing that I can think of that was on TV that really showed people kind of like this Washington state with the, the way it feels at night and the trees and the people, the lumberjacks and the diners and the coffee and everything that we kind of took for granted. And it's the same thing with like grunge and Nirvana and Pearl jam and all that stuff. Just being like, yeah, this feels so much like what I've grown up with. And now the rest of the world is sort of learning about it at the same time. Like the nineties was the early nineties was very obsessed with Washington state for whatever reason (laughs) they they caught up to that. And so David Lynch is just part of that. And like, I think that's why I feel I always need to defend him. I feel like even though he isn't a Washingtonian, I feel like I kind of have to defend him. And as if he's like part of the family or something, Um. (laughs) I feel the same way about Bonnie Bedelia. (laughs) Is she from Washington? Well, she was in heart like a wheel, which they shot in Olympia. Oh, they shot a scene from it. I don't. I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> no. Uh, if you want to go to bat for Bonnie Bedelia, I'm sure she'd be very happy about that. I'm, uh, I'll, I'll definitely bat for Bedelia, but but in this case, this is David Lynch's day, uh, unless she's unless she's playing um, one of the. Um, so yeah, so it's weird. Like uh, me watch. Like we're totally going off point, but it's fine. Uh, but when I first watched Twin Peaks when it came out, or soon after. I didn't, I didn't think of it as a thing that everyone else saw. I just thought of it as like, this is a Washington state show. Like these are the kind of weirdos in Washington state. And this feels like a thing. And you well, see, it, like, it's, it's weird to think of other people outside of Washington watching that same thing with listening to Nirvana. It's like, it's weird. Like as I, my point of view is like, this is, uh, it, it, this is for me. This is for us here. You know? Yeah, there is something. <laughs> there is some. We'll bring it because because we want to stay some semi Dune focused here. But the fact that Frank Herbert is a Northwesterner, yeah, and this book, I guess, kind of fits in there with like the Ken Kesey stuff, mm-hmm. like a, another Northwesterner writing about sort of psychedelic, revolutionary type literature. And then Lynch's voice, and even though this is a desert film, it does feel pretty moldy, you know? <laughs> it's got that black mold in there somewhere. Yeah, this film uh... definitely has this green mold. Like, it's weird. For a film that's all about deserts and space. It feels wet. It's, it's a wet. really green and wet <laughs> film. Sticky, sticky yeah, and... Uh, yeah, uh... yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about some like because I do want to stay on Dune. But, but, but I, I feel we like we totally about... digressed. But I, the yeah. point I was going to make thirty minutes ago was, I think where people go wrong with this movie is that they want it to be the book. People will be like, "I love the book. This movie's not the book. I hate this movie." Or like you and I have never read the book, so like this is an episode from the point of view. I, of someone I well, who's... I I listened to the books on tape when I was traveling as okay, a band. Good enough. <laughs> so I I rem- like, I yeah. And, as I talked about in, I don't remember what episode we did where we made something based on a book. We did an episode based on a book. I don't remember what it was. Oh, it was um, uh, Rules of Attraction. I feel like that is the wrong way to approach art. 
it's like you read the book great the book still exists the book the the thing that was in your mind with your book that is forever you can read lord of the rings and have your own move in your head of what lord of the rings is and then there's the movie and you have to think of it as a different thing you can't compare it like especially because now you have a new author you have the director you have the actors you have the cinematographer you have the composer you know like nobody read dune thinking of the music of toto (laughs) but here we are (laughs) you just have to take it for what it is don't try to compare it to the book forget you have to erase the book like when a tv show is made into a movie you have to forget about that tv show you have to embrace it for what it is in front of you that's kind of how i look at these things so like when i oh well like when i I feel like it's not fair to hold the mirror up to be like well it's got to be like the book like no movie is going to be like a book uh, okay okay hold on hold on you're getting very excited here brian (laughs) i think it's a little bit more complicated than that i don't think it's just one or the other you know i think that you know i think definitely so i'm just curious how open to you that you you already said that you're you're not ready to say the the name of the director of the new dune film how open to the new dune film are you not very open <laughs> okay so <laughs> i don't really okay i, I so, saw the trailer it looks fine okay so eh, i'm just eh, saying i'm just saying eh. so let me just point out how is that any different than reading the book first and then not wanting to see them having a problem with the movie because the movie's not because it's going to yeah. let you down because this is the same thing. You like this dude, this David Lynch Dune so much that you are unwilling because I have to say that I think it's possible to appreciate what David Lynch's Dune is yeah. and be looking forward to the possibility that this one is going to be a much better Dune. Just in the sense, I'll say, Timothy. Ch- I buy Timothy Chalamet as a fifteen-year-old way more than I buy Cal <laughs> McLaughlin as a fifteen-year-old in this movie, and I think that is like a sort of a key element that, the, that uh, will be great if this film is. Per- <clears throat> I'm just saying. So, what, what's if, the director's name? D- Denis Villeneuve. Villa- well, how do you say it? Villeneuve. I believe it's Villeneuve. I just don't understand why he needs to keep working his way through all of the filmography of Sean Young. It's like you make your Blade Runner sequel. Now you're redoing Dune. I'm excited to see his version of Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. <laughs> Just like, leave Sean Young alone. Let her have her movies. Do you need to add to that? Come on. Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> Why are you dragging Sean Young into this? It's like... <clears throat> You're just, using it, Sean Young to beat up Denise Villeneuve. I just feel like his movie looks good. It looks like I'm sure how the book is, but it does. It seems to be, at least from the trailer, lacking that unique artistic well, point of view that David Lynch has. Okay, like, but, and like, but we got that. Yeah, we got. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like I. That's why. I Aren't pref- you glad like, we we got this one? I'm this very glad. 1984. It's. Tune. I'm so glad we got it. You know. And and David Lynch truly practices his version of the weirding way, and I appreciate that. Yeah, do you like that yeah. he put himself in the movie? Oh my god, that, he looks like such a baby. He has such like a round baby face, but it's like unmistakably him with his voice. It's so good. <laughs> He's so good. Bless his bless his little heart. That's so good. 
It's a big expanded heart from all of his uh, meditation. <laughs> I, that's very true. Uh, yeah. So what what else do you get? What else? Throw some more questions. In. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about the really disgusting. Oh my aspect. god! There are some really. So, they so came disgusting. on while we were talking, and my. It's. It's. This is it's, why I was hostile to him initially. It's just like, why do that to me? Now I have that in my it, head. Why would you do that to me? And I wonder, like, what is in the book and what is this David Lynch being like, I love gross. Oh, well, <laughs> let, let me say something. So this is from the Projection Booth podcast. They play a, a, a little bit of um, an interview between Lynch, I mean, with Lynch and Herbert, Frank Herbert, right before the release of Dune. And they're talking about how much they work together. So Frank mm. Herbert was mm. very involved in the in the whole process, and it sounds like they got along great. So I don't feel like this is a case where David Lynch took the material and ran with it. I th- there's a point where Frank Herbert is saying that he had written a script and it was terrible, and David Lynch is like, "Oh, I don't." I don't. I haven't heard. I haven't seen it, but I can't believe it would have been terrible. And he's like, "No, no, it was." I, you speak in. You have. Uh, you speak in, a cinematic language, and that is something that I learned from you. And so we were. So it was great. And you, you really get the sense that they had lots of conversations, and that everything David Lynch did was somehow predicated on his interpretation of the direct communication from the author so in that sense it is a very it seems like a very true uh in sense of process as true as you could get a an interpretation of the novel and and maybe it's just for the for promotional purposes but frank herbert is basically saying i can i couldn't see anyone doing this but david lynch Hmm. so they when it came at the moment before it came out they were all feeling really good about it although Lynch is really funny. They were like, so are you worried about this? Like, I'm frightened constantly. (laughs) (laughs) Your impression, your Lynch impression is much better than mine. Mine (laughs) sounds much creepier. Uh, It's a gross movie. When I watched this with my wife the other night, we were just kind of both taken aback by how gross it was. We just kind of forgot this, like, especially when they go to the planet with the Harkonnens on it. Yeah, the Baron. It's just everyone's got, like, horrible, open, pussy... Just like pimple, just sort of like open sores. Their eyes are sewn just like, shut. Their ears are sewn shut. Disgusting. And you have them like working on the Baron's acne face sores, where they're just kind of like draining the pus out of it. Uh, they have that crazy, creepy part where the Baron goes to that soft-looking boy and rips the thing out of his chest and drains him of his life essence or whatever. And, it's just, and there's like oil dripping on him or whatever the fuck. And then the one's the really gross one is when he's when the Baron spits on Kyle McLaughlin's mom's face, which is like I'm gonna. Put and he some, announces it. He's like I'm gonna put some spittle on your face, and he just does it, and it's just so foul and disgusting and just offensive and just fucking gross. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like it is a very, it's a very ugly movie. Like there's no part of this movie that feels like a star Wars movie where star Wars movies, like the the ones made at the time of this before this are very fun and just very, you know, cheerful. And even though there's dark things in it, 
it's like good triumphing over evil and it's not like ugly and gross and sinister like this movie is like that's the david lynch kind of creeping into the blockbuster sci-fi blockbuster like this is a pg-13 movie this does not feel like this feels like an r-rated movie it's really it's really upsetting it feels like a lynch rated movie <laughs> it's I know, like... a lynch rated movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah where it's just it's so upsetting and gross it's really is and like definitely when he's on the the planet with the harkonnens like that feels like david lynch really kind of leaning into his stuff where it's like it's disgusting it's it's abstract it's got that industrial machinery stuff he loves the smoke just sort of like it's weirder like maybe that's because jack nance is there playing some strange instrument it's just like that like Everyone on that planet feels like they're from the same family as like Dennis Hopper and Blue Velvet. You know, like they're all just like these maniacs. They're kind of sexual, kind of dangerous, just like uh, evil, like kind of sexy people. And like Sting and Paul Smith. And they're all redheads, which is weird. <laughs> it's like a planet of gingers and they're all bad guys. It's almost like the O'Doyle family from Billy Madison have a whole planet. And they're all just these awful shits. Uh, it's and oh my god, let's pause for a second. And talk about how brilliant Brad Dorif is in this and in everything. Like I feel yeah. out of everyone in this movie, he's the one having the most fun, and he's in it so briefly. But he does this so almost like this talk to the hand move at one point, and like he's so. I feel he gets it more than anyone. He's really just having fun and he's so funny in this movie and he's so exaggerated and oh, he's so good. I love him so much, but like, he's just incredible in this film. Yeah. And, and as you said, in everything. <laughs> and in everything. What is your favorite Brad Dorif? Uh, Wise like, I'm a, uh, he's, he's just the best and he's always the best. Like in Deadwood. I mean, it's like, he's, there's so much good Chucky, stuff, but that like, was it's just, uh, yeah he's great he's a yeah. national treasure that man <laughs> why give me wise blood and deadwood yeah <laughs> those like if i had to just pick two and i love him in uh blue velvet as well he's like a little weirdo in that and his chucky is iconic and i love um him in bad lieutenant protocol new orleans and like he's just he's always on fire he's always so good like he's I honestly think he's one of the great actors like I really do like I just he's so unique like he is so him there's no one like him and in like the eight minutes of screen time he has here he really gives it all <laughs> I want him to work with David Lynch again like it's not enough like he doesn't I don't even think he says anything in Blue Velvet other than like maybe one line he's just kind of one of the weirdos standing behind Dennis Hopper but oh my god yeah, in this movie. <laughs> Cinematically, he's a strong flavor. <laughs> he really is. Um, um, I guess yeah. as is Virginia Madsen. She doesn't get... I mean, she's <laughs> in this movie and really doesn't have much to say or like... But when I think... Maybe it's just because of the opening, but when I think about this movie, I I remembered her as being in it much more... But she's then, barely in it and barely yeah. says anything. She's great, too. I really like her a lot. Um, and you need that opening. I know some people think it feels tacked on. It totally was. <laughs> but 
I feel like having someone just hold my hand and be like, here's the plot of the movie. <laughs> here's what these people are doing. Now, you know, now here's the movie. <laughs> I think that you need, sometimes you need that or else I'm just confused trying to keep track of everyone's name and what they're doing. So like, I'm sure David Lynch didn't want that at all. That seems like way more exposition that he would ever have. And I feel like that's the big weakness of this movie. If there is one is that he is not a plot driven filmmaker or storyteller. Like his stuff is very much about character and this movie really needs plot. You know, like it's so plot. And I, and I feel like that's the one thing that keeps it from kind of getting up to the level of the other David Lynch stuff is it is so like all the dialogue is only exposition for the whole damn movie because there's just so much to explain. <laughs> I think this gets back to the cinematic language thing. Like everyone says that all the acting in this movie is bad. No, but if all the acting <laughs> in the movie is bad, then what you mean is all the acting in the movie is consistent to a certain style that you aren't attuned to. It's like watching a Hal Hartley film. It's like everyone oh, in this yeah. movie is bad. No, no. Everyone in this movie is in a Hal Hartley film. Like, <laughs> I hate the way people talk in David Mamet films. Like, yeah. That's not real. It's real in the, the Dave, David Mamet universe. You know, you're, you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a writer's voice, you know. So, uh, yeah, with this... Uh, well, it, I, you, well, I guess the, what you're saying is that the, I mean, I think that's one of the ways that did the David Lynchian uh, director's touch can really be felt is in the performances in with these, what people call bad performances, but are, I guess, proto Lynchian performances. <laughs> like he doesn't, he doesn't want subtle. He doesn't like that. <laughs> this is, this is a person who wants people to kind of go into a very exaggerated way of, of 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 emoting and talking and yeah it's they, like, he doesn't it's want like, subtle as acting but he wants yeah. subtle and he knows that he can draw greater subtleties out of big performances yeah and i think i think it's good to go back to this movie i think if anyone had hasn't seen this in a while and remembered hating it now that you've seen more david lynch now that you've seen maholland drive and twin peaks season three and inland empire and whatever Go back and watch this as a David Lynch movie, not as a Star Wars ripoff or as an adaptation of Dune. Like if you look through it through the lens of like, this is David Lynch. I feel it is rewarding. Like, I feel like you get what oh, you yeah. want. You get, you get a David Lynch movie for sure. Like just even like the weird dreams that Kyle McLaughlin has feels so much like Eraserhead and Twin Peaks, just like the, the sounds like the, the images, the superimposition, like it, it is unmistakably Lynch. Yeah. And I think now, like if you, if you can hang with inland empire, then <laughs> you should be able to hang with Dune. <laughs> it's about an hour shorter, <laughs> has a little more of structure. <laughs> Like but if you think just like, Dune is like if you don't think Inland Empire like the, one of the complaints about Dune is that it's confusing and gross, <laughs> and it's like well Inland Empire is definitely more confusing, and probably just as gross. I don't know, just as gross. There's some really there's some ugly stuff in this film. Oh yeah, <clears throat> it's part of the it's part of its charm. I really I t I really like hearing everyone's thoughts in this movie too. 
I really love that. I haven't seen a lot of movies that do that. It feels very Shakespeare to me. It's very much like an aside, you know, of just like pausing and letting people know kind of like what they're thinking, but the other people don't. And I really like that about this movie. Like I've never seen a blockbuster big Hollywood movie do that other than. Yeah, like, I don't think we can call this a blockbuster. It's well, I think it was intended to be. It was intended <laughs> it was, to be like it's in that world of this is the movie that cost a lot of money and they build the big sets and we're putting all the famous people in it. Uh, but I love hearing their thoughts. Did you like that or you did you not like that part? Like I really think that's the so great in this movie. I, you know, I this is one of the things I don't think I like. Like as I'm watching this as we're talking the image like the imagery i'm enjoying it on a pure <laughs> cinema level but i really on a visceral level i can't say that i enjoy this film <laughs> but i i don't enjoy it in a way that is consistent with my experience of david lynch which is very pot like which he stays consistent and I go in and out. So I like I was talking about how I was I responded very negatively to his early work. Then after Twin Peaks, I became someone who was very frustrated with people who were who got angry at Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway. And I really felt like I really got those films yeah. and then was in that position of getting them from the get go and having to have all these conversations battle you know debates with people who wanted to just say he was pretentious so i ended up debating my younger self and then i felt i went along feeling like oh i get david lynch i get david lynch and then i saw inland empire and was like oh shit now i'm back in back in the first boat again i love that i, I love that movie yeah uh, i know <laughs> well I, t- well, okay, quickly because we're we want to stay on on but give me the 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 pre, what is it Tell me something you love about Inland Empire. I, I just he's one of my favorite filmmakers, and I really and I really just like I really trust him and really understand his embracing of dreams and the abstract, mm-hmm. and sort of like taking what we kind of now what we understand with like how paintings work, but putting it in a film, which I think is not what people are used to because I think film to people is more like it's entertainment. It's supposed to have a, a very clear story or character, blah, blah, blah. And he goes so far into his right brain and so far into that, that like, you know, it's like looking at a Rothko painting or something. Like it's just, it may just be colors to you and it means nothing. Or you look at it and you feel feelings and emotion. That there's a story for you there. And his movies are very much like that. And I think if you're looking for something that is clear or complete or makes any sort of sense or, you know, just like, or even it is like reaches you as a human being on a certain level of storytelling or emotion, you may not get that. And, and just like with a great painting, it's whatever you want it to be. And I really like, that's kind of his interviews. It's always like people want him to explain stuff. And he's like, no, if you think it's this, then that's what it is. Right. And there's very few people making movies like that. I feel people with movies really want to kind of, go back to making it more like a play, like a movie is more like from where plays were. And then they turn into movies where you have a story, you have 
X, you have characters, you have character arcs. And he doesn't give a shit about that. He really trusts sort of like, I dreamt this thing and I want to see it and I'm going to put it in a movie. And like, this is a man who, you know, spends his days, you know, doing transcendental meditation. And your mind goes to interesting places when you do that. And I'm glad, I'm really happy that he's putting that on film. And in Inland Empire, more so than even Mulholland Driver, Lost Highway is like so just open and big and abstract. And it's just sort of like he just kind of put out there whatever he was dreaming and feeling that those in those years. And I found that very exciting. <laughs> so I'm curious. I find that very thrilling. That's that's so amazing to me that someone is doing that, that like you're taking your brain and you're taking then a camera and trying to take what's in your brain out the camera with people and making a movie out of it. Um, so do you feel the same way about Terrence Malick's most Malicky <laughs> later work? See, see, I don't like that stuff. So that's the interesting thing is like, to me, I feel like they're very uh, similar, but maybe his dreams are not interesting to me. I don't know. Like, I feel like there's something about David Lynch that I'm like endlessly fascinated. Like I know people who find Inland Empire so boring and so long winded. And so just oh, like, I don't cares? think that. Like why? Like why is this going on for hours? Like what does this mean? Who cares? But whereas I watch something like Knight of Cups, and I'm like I don't care. Like it's pretty, but it's so hollow. I don't understand. But I make may like I think maybe the problem with Malik is that I have been approaching it trying to like fit it in some sort of structure, and I should kind of approach him like a David Lynch and be like, no, this is abstract. Like this is a dream that I'm that I'm I'm witnessing and I maybe I need to revisit I think I've maybe been wrong about Terrence Malick because I've been wanting to be more like Badlands or something where it's more like there's a story and characters that I can like kind of attach to but they haven't been like his movies have all recently been just like these wild you know you know things in like some abstract things in someone's brain uh so that that's an interesting comparison. I should like it's now that we're talking about it. Maybe, maybe I should revisit because I'm very openly against <laughs> Night of Cups and a lot of Terrence Malick stuff. But maybe I need to go back and think of it differently. Well, I just feel like well, I can only say my own experience with Lynch. It's like as I said, he as I as a as a some level of film academic. I can look at him and say, he's consistent from beginning to end. There's no un-David Lynch, David Lynch film. Yeah. You know, Dune might be the... I mean, even that, in other words, as we're, the, the argument we're making is that Dune is a totally David Lynch film. So he's consistent. The consistency doesn't make him great. <laughs> I think part of what makes him great is that even if you like, and maybe there are people who like David Lynch so much that when they are waiting to see the next David Lynch film, every time they see it, they have this feeling of like, oh, I get it. Yeah, you did it. But my experience with him <laughs> is that sometimes I'm looking forward to his next movie and it's wild at heart. And I'm like, Holy shit! You just blew my mind. This is uh, this is it. Yes, I get it, and I still am hostile to things in that movie when I think about it. Like I'm, I'm, <laughs> but happily, respectfully host hostile. 
and then I, I'm excited to see Inland Empire, and I go and I sit in the movie theater for hours just being confused, <laughs> and by that point, so the the hostility for the first ones is coming from a place of ignorance. The feeling about a film like Inland Empire is like, okay, well, he's ahead of me again, <laughs> and. And, and it's not and not ahead of me in terms of a competition, but it's sort of like, okay, if I really want to see this film, I'm going to need to give it, I'm going to need to work on it. I'm going to have to meet it where it is, and I'm not there yeah. yet. Whereas like with Twin Peaks third season, watching that, it was not so much a feeling of not getting it, but a, definitely a feeling of... And I kind of love and hate this feeling when I'm watching a movie of like, I can't get my eyes open enough to get everything that's good in this movie. Like I need to, I wish I could spend a, like, I, I guess I do a whole podcast on that, just that, like, and having a conversation about every episode with someone like yeah. really delving into it. There's so much, it's so rich yeah. that... I couldn't like it's the Kubrick thing. Like the first time watching a Kubrick film is kind of like the first time watching a Lynch film. You're just yeah. as likely to be offended and disappointed as you are to be blown away. But if you weren't blown away, give it time. That's sort of how I that's how I am with Paul Verhoeven movies. I'll yeah. watch it. I'll watch it and my instant reaction will be like, I fucking hate that. <laughs> and then uh, and then I'll find myself only thinking about it the whole time that I'm alive. And then I'll go back and be like, oh, no, I'm wrong. I fucking love it. <laughs> and it's just, it's because there's just so much that it's like, it's not so simple, Simon. You know, like there is something there. It's, it is rich. There's like, and maybe I'm reacting to the visceral part of it. And I'm just like instantly taken aback by how offensive it is or graphic or shocking or not like other things. But once it takes a while for my brain to kind of, I was that way with Sonic Youth. I remember when I first heard them, I was like, I hate this band. I don't understand why anyone likes this band. And then I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I went back and was listening to everything over and over again. And then it was like, oh, I get it. This band's amazing. I feel that's the sign of good art. You know, I think having an instant reaction of like, this is the worst. I hate it. Maybe means that you love it and you just need time for your body and mind to digest it for a bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I got I, I got another question for you about this film. This, okay. this dog in this film. <laughs> there's like everything in this film is disgusting and weird. And then there's this cute little dog that is. <laughs> this St. Patrick Stewart storm into battle holding a little pug. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't get that in the X-Men movies. You don't get it in Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> <laughs> and there's like one battle scene where there's like the whole there's stuff falling all around and then the pug just walks into the shot yeah and then like you have these like ugly awful like terrifying looking sets and there's someone like walking some you know little pugs around that's got to be in the book like that's such a weird detail i don't that, i don't uh, think that i don't think I, they talk about pugs in the pugs i why I, they I, have why I, they have earth dogs on this planet <laughs> Just, or in this but universe, just yeah, I don't just know. like the idea of like I'm gonna cradle this cute puppy and run into battle with it. Very bizarre, very great. Because yeah, you're right. Like that's sort of like the only 
cute thing in this ugly, ugly universe. <laughs> this movie takes I guess like, this and maybe, Kyle McLaughlin's hair. His beautiful, his beautiful and hair. And Virginia Madsen, who you and don't Virginia get, Madsen, who we yeah. never get to see at all. Yeah, those are like the, the, the little beacons of light through this like ugly muck. Sorry, Sean Young. <laughs> Do we talk about Sean Young? You did mention, I mean, you kind of made a joke about Sean Young, but are you a Sean Young fan? I don't know if I'm a fan. I like the movies she's in. I feel she's good, but I, I kind of always find myself sort of forgetting that she's in things. Like, I feel bad. Like, she's not bad, but I feel like there aren't, like, there's movies where she's really good in it. Like, honestly, even though I joked, I think she's really good in Ace Ventura Pet Detective. But, like, I feel like in a lot of movies, she's kind of used as scenery. It's like, oh, she's got a pretty face. Like I think she's really good in Blade Runner. Here, I don't think she's kind of she's kind of a non-entity here. I feel and I feel like it. That's sort of when the movie gets sort of like that's when I can tell why people don't like it is like when it's just sort of like, and then they fall in love and then three years later this thing like it just kind of like feels like they cut out like four hundred pages of a book and so you don't really get why they like why Kyle McLaughlin's character and her character fall in love and how they get together and it just feels like rushed is is not even the right way to say it. it's like it's not even there it's just like it just happens and then they're just going with it and then you go over like a few years of life and all of a sudden they have like a kid who's like walking around and talking and so like I feel like out of all the characters hers the most cheated because you don't really understand why there's this connection why they're getting together it just feels so much like that's in the new movie, you're going to get more of that. Like that's sort of like a big chunk. Like the new movies, the first part of two movies, like you're going to get something that definitely is going to have more of that character arc. Like Dune doesn't really have any character arc in that way. Like it will tell you what happens to people, but you don't really feel it. So I can see why people can't connect to this movie in that way. That you're not really understanding or feeling what's happening to anybody in this movie. I don't care, but some people care about that. But I think her character is the most cheated uh, of that. It just she just kind of used as sort of like, oh, and that's his girlfriend who becomes his wife, and they have a kid, and she doesn't really get to do anything. That, you know, it's 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 weird because she's mostly known for her appearance, for her not very you know, exceptional performances in these huge sci-fi films, but. In Stripes and Young Doctors in Love, she was really, you know, she was really charming in comedies. It, it's kind of, it's, it almost makes you think of her as a sort of a Marion Davies type. Like there was this thing to push her into the sexy femme fatale or the sexy hero or the love interest, the sexy love interest when there's just something like she's just really good at just being a wise crack, which is why I like her in Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Funny lady. that's what she's doing in that. Um, I think it's like that weird thing that like people who are funny but they're beautiful, yeah, then aren't allowed to be funny, and it takes like someone like a George Clooney to like fight against that and actually prove like no, 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 I am very funny, you know, or Brad Pitt or whatever, you know, like, and I think it's harder for actresses even to be like no, 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 I'm really funny. Like, like, let me be funny. Like, that's Charlie's Theron on Arrested Development. So good. good. So funny. Yeah. It's just, I think it's just hard for people to, like, when you're beautiful. Like, that's Alec Baldwin's thing. It's just like, you are a comedian. You're a fucking comedian. You're also a great actor. 
But then there was that weird time where we just only had you cast as like the dramatic lead when you should have been being funny in things. And I think it's easier for dudes to kind of cross over that, but like so much harder for women. Um, I think Sean Young's good in No Way Out, though. I, I think that's a dramatic performance. I think she's very good in that. Um, and A Kiss Before Dying. Have you ever seen that? They uh, Yeah. That film noir thing with her and Matt Dillon based on the Ira Levin novel. That's a great ero- 90s erotic thriller. And she's very good in that. Like, I really feel that like in love crimes that's a weird another weird thriller i feel she's kind of gotten a bad rep like i i've always found her really good and interesting i think in this movie she's kind of cheated out of it but like i don't know like again comedy her and fatal instinct so good like (laughs) that's a great movie also with cheryl and fenn so check out her comedies like don't just think of her as like the set dressing in like uh blade runner or this like the, i think you're right i think young doctors in love is due for people to revisit that's a great movie. you know what i'm curious about as i'm looking i'm looking at her filmography right now she was in even cowgirls get the blues talking about other northwestern literary properties turned into yeah. films that nobody liked i wonder but <laughs> gus van zandt uh, doing the Tom Robbins novel, novel even Cowgirls Get the Blues, and she's in that film. Uh, and it yeah. kind of makes me want to go back and check that one out. Do you, do you remember being a fan of Even Cowgirls Get the Blues? Oh, that's a great movie. Okay. That's a, you know what, that we should do, we should totally do that movie. That is a movie that's hated, again, because people love the book and didn't like the movie. Very good Keanu Reeves performance in that. Crispin Glover. Okay. I'm a big like, that, and that was when Gus Van Sant to me was like unstoppable. Like in the '90s, like he was just so good, and that movie I feel is no exception. I am ready to love <laughs> this film. I am absolutely ready to love this film. I, When's I, the last I, time I, you watched it? When it came out. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm a big fan. You know what? Let's do it. <laughs> I don't know when, but let's do a season two episode. You know, it's funny. There movie. are two things. Uh, the other thing that w- that really inspired me about this is because we didn't get enough Virginia Madsen. And I am like, well, we got to do the hot spot because I love oh, yeah. that movie oh. that Dennis Hopper film so, and her performance. Yeah. Like everything that we didn't get in Dune, we get all of that t- and, and more. <laughs> that that in the hot spot. That's another. We should definitely like that is a great movie. That's a great. I love. That's a great I love film. that. Yes, that's a great idea. There you go. We're already planning. Future <laughs> okay. Episodes so because of Dune. Yeah, Dune. It is. It's a. You know the thing. You know the thing about Dune. This is. This is. It's a weird kind of inspiration. But and I don't mean this as an insult, but Dune is a film that you watch it. And part of the inspiration is to think of anything so that you don't have to think about what you watched. It's like it drives you away toward like inspired, but rushing away from it. Like I need to palate cleanse my brain. Let's watch <laughs> the hotspot and even cowgirls got the blues because yeah. this I can't like seeing this. I just saw the scene where he spits on the mother's face. And not just that, <laughs> but Brad Dorf then picking it up, like rough, you know, running his fingers over the spittle. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, there's somebody, uh... there's someone, maybe David Lynch. I don't know. There's someone who watches that and is like, 
Mm. That's my, I don't get enough of that in movies. There's not enough of like people spitting on each other's faces. And, you know, there's somebody who's really excited about that. And I think it's, I think if that's what's in David Lynch's brain and he puts that on film and I think this is true of anyone. I really do. As long as you're not hurting anyone and it's all consensual, if you can think of something, you, the place to put it is into film or art or, you know, is to put it into a painting or whatever. And it might elicit a, a negative response, but I think David Lynch is here to tell us, to inspire us that who cares? Just keep doing it. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like he didn't follow up Dune with a less difficult movie. Just an easier Way for more him, difficult movie. <laughs> an easier for him to make movie, but a more difficult yeah. movie. With, yeah. and I love what you said. I think that that is the real cinematic power and strange just, you, he shouldn't have, no, there's no world in which he should have worked with Kyle MacLachlan again. On yeah, a, you think he would have been like, oh, that's such a bad me, memory that guy worked with on that big movie. I need to start totally anew. Yeah. It's like breaking up with someone where you got to get rid of all the gifts they gave you and you got to just like well, it's just clean a house before you move on. And he instead was like, no, this guy, we're going to do it again, but do it my way 100%. <laughs> And then this guy, we're going to do it again, but on network television, my way, 100%. Like, the faith they had in each other, I feel, even though, like, what they did together is so popular, I feel it isn't quite recognized, that, like, how amazing it is that they continued to work together after Dune. Yeah. Like, it just it's insane when you think about it. That, like, because watching just Dune, if you just base Kyle MacLachlan off of just Dune, you would think... He's fine. He's good. No, you but, might not you know, even think that. But, but like, or you might be like, oh, he just was, he had to work with this guy or whatever. But then like he taps into such a good thing with him, Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks. And it's like the, some of the great, you know, characters of the last you know 40 years. And it's, it's just fantastic that they were able to go from this thing that was kind of considered a bad moment in their lives and well, to make great, continue to make great things afterwards, here, which is it, fantastic. What, what I want to be clear about, like, as an actor, like, it's not that Kyle MacLachlan decided to keep working with David Lynch on, on two levels. One, because an actor is going to say yes to the job, probably. And David <laughs> Lynch is still regarded as a great director, even at, even yeah. after the failure of Dune. And also... Kyle MacLachlan just has to show up and act in it and then go on and act. And he can act in many other th things. When David Lynch goes to make Blue Velvet after Dune, I, I want to like hammer home the amount of confidence in oneself and faith in this particular actor that it takes to put the guy who was at the center of your failed film at the center of your next big statement most directors would have used the opportunity, would have distanced themselves from that actor and said, oh, well, I just, it was his, they would have put the <laughs> failure of the, so many directors would have put the failure of the film onto casting, yeah. onto, if I had had a more, if I had had a more charismatic lead in my film, then my film would be yeah. a hit. Instead of that, 
And this just speaks to like what I think is the great thing that one of the great things about David Lynch is that whatever interaction they had inspired him enough that he was willing to go that hard against what must have been the advice of anyone who was still a small minded (laughs) person within his group who would have said, oh, well, that's not a good idea. You should really consider this other yeah so this nicholas cage guy or you know i couldn't even i can't even imagine being like so you made this movie that failed at the box office was a horrible experience for you and you want to like come out of those the the, out of the ashes and make go back to where you were like you want to restart and who do you want to be the star of your movie that guy from the last movie that was that horrible thing that hasn't done anything since then. He didn't do anything from Dune to Blue Velvet. He did not work. And everyone be like, and like, and and it's the first thing <laughs> that I can't think of any other director that did that. Like you have, sure, like Scorsese going from New York, New York with De Niro to doing Raging Bull, but they had already worked together yeah. many times before, so that's different. You know, like I'm trying to think of like who else has done. Nobody has ever. I don't think I don't. Nobody as, to be like you, you were the as star someone who has worked with several directors on their early films. Mostly, they don't do that. They don't bring along go, like, their people. Like that. That just means that he truly knew how good Kyle MacLachlan was, yeah. and really the trust that was there to be like, we're gonna do, a, we're gonna start over, and you're gonna still be the star, but we're gonna take it this way. And then kept going with him. And that's incredible. Like, that's amazing. Because like, he could have totally wanted to throw it all away. But like there, like you said, there's so many people from this movie that then kept going. Yeah. Like, in Blue Velvet alone, Dean Stockwell came back. And Jack Nance. And it's Brad Dorif. And, like, he just kept, like, those people for whatever reason connected. Like, Dean Stockwell is kind and of a non And Dino De Laurentiis. That's right. So, like, even the producer who, like, lost money <laughs> on this was, like, that's just the power of how good David Lynch is, I feel, for someone to be, like, you know what, like, we're going to do it again and we're going to try again because that's how much we believe in this guy. Like, that's fantastic. Like, that's not really a thing that happens often or at all, ever. No, when someone's... And, <laughs> and he's still... That's the thing. So, from what I understand, or at least as of when the projection booth did their podcast about... Dune, which, by the way, was their fourth podcast and was back in like 2015 or something like that, Um, that at least as of that, at least as of that, as as of that podcast, David Lynch still feels like he can't talk about this film, feels very negative about the experience of losing the final cut on Dune And yet his response to it, and this is, again, speaks to, like, I think a a truly artistic response is that he takes responsibility for letting it get out of hand rather than putting the responsibility on Dino De Laurentiis for Mm -hmm. taking it from him. And something about that way of approaching the world allows him to then go on, work with Dino De Laurentiis again and make Blue Velvet. And have yeah. it be a great thing, a great experience for all involved. Yeah. And yeah. that, it's just, uh, it is a unique thing. And it it's so odd. I think this is the great, and it's sort of obvious if you love David Lynch, but I, 
maybe there are people who are listening to this who, who, who haven't really delved in. That is the great and weird paradox of David Lynch's films is that they are brutal and ugly. And yet you get this weird and wonderful generosity of spirit that flows through mm-hmm. all of it. And so yeah. it does, even though you may have a, a visceral response to the first viewing that is like, why is this film doing this to me and making me see these things <laughs> that once you've gone through that process and you can go back to it again, you will have this experience of, Oh wow. This is such a, su- I mean, yes, it's still ugly, but it's such a sweet expression artistically so generous to to one's own his own artistic inspiration and that gives anyone who views it license to be that creative although i think few take take it on but uh Mm -hmm. have you ever been in a situation where you're in a working in a production capacity and someone suggests well well let's do something lynchian with this always every time always I was guilty of that with my movie that I just did. Yeah. It's like, it's just like, I can't help, but like, just like the, the way to explain a certain kind of abstract way of doing something. Like, it's just so much easier to say that. And then everyone gets exactly what you're trying to do instantly. Like, like at least film people, like you don't have to explain it. You can be like, Oh, we're just going to do this sort of like lynchy sort of way of doing this, you know? And they're like, okay, yeah, we get it. Well, what do you mean when you say <laughs> like that as a director? I think it just be like, it's kind of like that trusting in the abstract of like not having it have to make total sense in terms of character plot, but more of a feeling, more of a mood, you know, like kind of leaning into that, like definitely a little dreamy, definitely a little absurd, but there's just something about, about it that, uh, that people get pretty quickly, you know, um, yeah, I think I think it's just it's a good shorthand to have. Yeah. <laughs> well, have we done it? We done it. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. Yeah. No, I th- I feel very happy with this conversation. I I hope people just you know, if you watch the new one, great. If you love it or hate it, great. But you know what? HBO also has the original on there, so you can watch both. <laughs> you should watch both because it's it's a it's a journey it's a journey worth taking especially if you like david lynch forget what you heard about this movie if you like david lynch i feel you will like this movie if you approach it as a you know a fascinating view of some of david lynch you know in a crossroads if you will in his career hi i'm brian and i'm aj and we have a podcast called the director's wall Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. He's Steve Lippman. And she's Candy Claire. And together we figure it out. Join us as we take on life's unanswered or overly answered questions. Our guests include comedians, healers, environmentalists, bake-off contestants, and some nonsense from our beloved intern, Dine. You can send us questions and hear them answered live on the podcast. 
a new episode every or every other Wednesday on Paper House Network. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Eight notes scale an octave. Master the scale and you master the score. So, Brian, we've waited all this time and we because we wanted you to get a chance to see the new Dune so you could give us your report. <laughs> uh, what, how'd, how'd it go? Uh, I didn't see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. Well, I, I rewatched the I rewatched this one again. You actually you made time to rewatch <laughs> Dune 84. No, I did it. No, I, since no, I did our it. last talk, but no. no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I have not had time to see uh, any movie uh, that's new. Because everyone says you should see the new one in the theater, and I don't want to watch it, you know, tiny, if that's the case. I know that's kind of your thing, too. It's like, you don't want to watch this movie on your phone. David yeah. Lynch wouldn't agree with that. Yeah, I, I, so. <laughs> I, I have it. I'm ready to watch it, but I'm just thinking <laughs> at least on a larger monitor. So, uh, but by then... The date, uh, the release date for this episode will have passed. So, <clears throat> sorry, folks, we are not here to pass <laughs> uh, praise or judgment on this film. Yeah. Uh, only <laughs> to tell you that uh, it is called uh, Dune, and it's out there, and it's probably good. It's probably good to see all the Dune you can get. I, I feel like you can't get enough Dune. <laughs> Do you ever see the '90s version, the one that had like William Hurt and? It was like made for Sci-Fi Channel or something. Did you ever watch that one? I never saw that one either. Sounds great. William Hurt, The Desert. What can go wrong? <laughs> I mean, exactly. he could get his he could get his forehead burned. He seems like he's a fair-skinned fella. And yeah, hopefully he wears a hat. Yeah, I would recommend he wears a, wears a hat and some nice sunscreen. <laughs> uh, yeah, it stays hydrated. <laughs> he, he just needs a skin suit, right? He needs a, he needs a suit to recycle his his urine. The whole. <laughs> Maybe that's in there. Now I really want to watch it just to report to you if that happens or not. <laughs> you think if William Merton goes into one of those those suits, he comes out as the the, the monster from Altered States? <laughs> yeah, I think that's the that's what happens. It's like you're hydrated, but gosh, you're a caveman now. This didn't work out. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, well, Dune, uh, do it, um, and. Uh, well, I, I hope I hope you've enjoyed this episode, folks. And uh, if you want to find out more about the world is wrong, you find you can find us at um, www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. We don't get nearly enough emails, Brian. We should ask for we, them. Hardly any. With a lot more <laughs> gusto. Um, yeah. Although I, I I want to say I've noticed. In the last week, all of a sudden, people in Olympia, not a lot, but certainly more than in the past, there has been a contingent of Olympians who are now listening huh. to this show. So I want to say hmm. a special, I, I hope they're listening because they like us and not like looking for evidence 
to crush us. <laughs> but if you are yeah. one of those Olympians who want to write to us and make us feel a little bit more comfortable, we'll accept it. We'll take it. Uh, please do so at contact at the world is wrong podcast.com. We're, we have a, oh man, there's a noise around me. We'll just do, we'll just go out on this. It's fine. Uh, we have, uh, we're on two social media platforms. One Instagram, where Brian posts lots of film clips from the films that we cover, and it's really just a wonderful, joyous celebration of these films. And then we're also, and that's at uh, the World Is Wrong podcast at the World Is Wrong podcast on Instagram, and you can also find us on that terrible platform called Twitter, where <laughs> we are under the the uh, the banner at World Is Wrong Pod. That's where I post and like things. Don't hold Brian responsible for anything that happens there. Uh, it's nothing terrible, but, you know, Brian has made it clear. He wants to, ever since they kicked Donald Trump off Twitter, he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And uh, <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> no. See, Wait a that's minute. The kind of sar- that's the kind of sarcastic <laughs> thing I might say, but it's not true. It is not true. Brian hated Twitter long before you know, he, long before, before that, yeah. yeah, he jumped, jumped ship long before that for good reason. But, you know, we're there in case you want to do that. Occasionally, yet we have yeah. an opportunity to amplify something that I think is cool. Like all the great things that are happening for Chameleon Street with that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Blu-ray release. Oh, my God. The sound is going crazy. Let's get out of here. Uh, I feel like the, the sandworms are coming. The sandworms are coming. Uh, <laughs> our next episode is Winter Kills. Uh, and uh, you should definitely check that film out before you uh, before we spoil it in our episode which is the, the, our next episode. Damn, this is driving me crazy. Uh, Brian, anything, last thing you want to say to the, the, the Dunophiles, the, the Dune, the Dunces? The, whatever. No, just, you know, give it a chance. Go enjoy the new one, but then come back and watch the old one. Okay, and wherever you are, particularly if you are in my apartment in Los Angeles, the world is wrong and it's probably wrong about you. see a worm well, there's spice and spice mining there are always worms always always where do they come to protect their territory vibrations attract them you must be a fremen or in with them he's studying us he's hiding something about the spice is there a relationship between the worms and the spice as i said They defend the spice sands. As to their relationship with the spice, who knows? Radio 8 Ball. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers, from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word, 
You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show. Mm-hmm.